The scripture for today's sermon comes from Acts 17, 30 through 32. The word of God speaks to us. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. This is God's word to us. Good morning, family. You doing okay? It's good to see you guys today. Um, my name is Chad Kinser, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm really glad that you're here. And uh, if you have a Bible, open up to the passage that was just read to us in Acts chapter 17. We'll be there in just a second. Um, John Reiner mentioned about a Christmas jammy photo booth on the steps. That <laughs> I feel like I need to explain myself here. In our pre-service meeting, that was a way for, to help him figure out how to make the announcement about no services on Christmas Day, saying, oh, there'll be no Christmas jammy photos on the steps. What that turned into was apparently my family will be taking Christmas jammy photos on, on the front steps. No services on, on Christmas Day. Hey, one more piece of family business, though, before I jump in. Um, at the first of the year, we're going to have a, a men's event, uh, Masculine Virtue, on Friday, January 6th and 7th. Um, and th- really what, where this is coming out of is a burden from, that all of our elders share uh, from some of the early days in our church, recognizing the mark of God's grace on, on our church uh, to bring the gospel to, to men and call them up to lives of godliness, discipleship, integrity, repentance, lives of character, men of consequence in the world. And those have just been marks of grace on our church over the years. And we just feel a call to double down on that and come back to some of that. And so we're going to have this event uh, to kick off the new year. And then starting on January 8th, that Sunday, right after the event. So 6th and 7th is the event. Sunday the 8th, we'll have a three-week sermon series, a mini-series that's sort of captured inside of our 1 Corinthians sermon series. So at the end of 1 Corinthians, we've been in that book for a while. But the very end, chapter 16, Paul's going to actually call out the men of Corinth to act like men, to stand up as men of character and virtue. And when you recognize what's been happening in the church of Corinth in our study is that so many things were busted up in their city, much of that at the end of the book is going to come from a a result of men not taking up their place in Corinth, not taking up their place in their moment as men of character, of godliness, and uh, of repentance. So we're going to lean into that series coming out of the event and as a mini-series in our study of 1 Corinthians. So I want to call your attention to that, sort of look forward to that, be praying with us uh, about that event. And uh, sisters in the room, uh, join us in prayer as we war for the hearts and the character of, of our brothers. Amen? We're looking forward to that. Um, so in Acts chapter 17, the passage that was just read in our Advent series, we've been taking up the theme of last things, last times, as we stand in what some scholars call the in-between, the time between, the first advent of Jesus at his birth and the second advent at his return. And so we've taken up the last few weeks the return of Christ. Last week, Josh unpacked the resurrection of the dead, and today we'll jump in um, to what is the traditional topic of the final judgment at Christmas, right? Um, There's actually a lot of help and hope for us as we unpack the topic of judgment today. So if you would, please pray for me. I'll pray for you, and and we'll, we'll get some work done today. Our Father, we come before your word, and I know I'm confessing this for myself, but I I don't think I'm alone today as we come before your word. My heart is not as alive to your word as it ought to be. 
Um, my heart is not as engaged toward your word as, as it should be. And so I'm asking now in, this, in these next 30 minutes we have together, would you spike up our attention? Would you call us to sobriety and reality of your presence in this room and in the world? And Holy Spirit, I'm going to call on you <laughs> in the name of our Lord Jesus Jesus, thank you for the gift of pouring out the Spirit on us. Even now, in Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask that you would do in this room what Jesus said you would do from the day he poured your presence out into the world and the church. Would you guide us into truth? Holy Spirit, would you please guide us? Would you help us navigate the truth, particularly around holy visitation on the great day? And so we offer this prayer in the great name of our Lord Jesus. And the church agreed and said, amen, amen. Well, I didn't grow up uh, in a Christian home or grow up um, as a believer. My home would be probably more described as a home that was um, haunted by religious morality, sort of the, 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 the moral and ethical implications of the gospel rather than the gospel itself. Um, and so my presentation, or the presentations given to me, I should say, probably around the gospel early on um, were more driven by a fear of hell than a fear of God. If I can say it that way, maybe you would resonate with that. Um, some of my earliest uh, impressions of what was told to me as the Bible's message came from uh, my friends inviting me to church. And um, do you remember these like Halloween judgment houses some churches would do? You remember, anybody? Uh, you laugh. It, it's awful, right? Emotional manipulation is what that is. Um, not sure a healthy presentation of, of the gospel. So if you don't know what this is, you're much better off. Uh, if you don't know about churches, what was essentially would happen is a church would sponsor this like student ministry event around Halloween and it would be like this Christian haunted house, which would amount to some sort of judgment scene of like a car crash or some sort of drunken car accident. And you go through the scenes of this and the person, a part of it would then stand before the judgment of God. And if you were to die tonight, do you have confidence that you would enter in, you know? And then after it would all be done, you would sort of be guided into a room where the youth minister would stand there and ask you those questions. And again, you're like, this is, you, you, uh, you tease it out, like, we actually did, the people actually did this, and this is really an un, unhealthy way of, of doing this. And, and, you know, people came to Christ out of this, you know. If you want to know if God's sovereign in the world, people came to Jesus in 90s student ministry, right? Like, <laughs> how that happened from judgment houses is kind of crazy. Um, but what's interesting is, is moving from there, as I, as I stepped into ministry early on, at least in the tribe that I ran in, no one was saying this out loud, um, but it was sort of the undercurrent. If we were going to have a hearing in the world, if, we if non-Christians would hear us about our gospel, what we would need to do is de-emphasize themes of hell and judgment to the emphasis, to the strong emphasis then of God's love and his mercy and his justice, or sorry, his, his grace, right? And forgiveness, things like that. Let's, let's emphasize the softer parts of God's character and let's sort of hide uh, people from things of hell and judgment if we're gonna get a hearing in the world. And um, what's interesting is it's, it was as though we have to protect people from these things or these were skeletons, as one author called it, skeletons in God's closet. And that's actually largely continued to be the trend for the last couple of decades, where, where we de-emphasize judgment to the emphasis of God's love. But what's interesting, what's interesting, the problem is that while the church has gone relatively quiet on the issue of judgment, it's not as though the subject has gone quiet altogether. It's not as though the issue or the interest in judgment has gone quiet. It's actually been taken up by the world. 
So where the church has gone quiet, the church, the world has, has turned up the volume. Think about issues of cancel culture and justice and social justice. We're in a broader cultural moment where it's almost all judgment and no grace in the world we live in. We just came out of a campaign season that was all judgment and, and no grace. And judgment is being handed out on terms that keep moving. The goalposts and the standard of where judgment is coming, the goalposts keep moving. And so there is a demand for justice and judgment regardless of whether or not the church wants to talk about it. And it's not so much that you and I don't want judgment. We just don't want it for ourselves or for people close to us. Right? For ourselves and people close to us, we want mercy. It's not that we don't want judgment, maybe just so long as we get to be the judge. Just so long as we get to call the balls and strikes and we get to say what's in bounds and out of bounds. But maybe to think a bit more searching in your own chest, wherever you have those places of guilt and shame, feelings of unworthiness or places you know you've gone wrong, those places actually speak to a fear of judgment, don't they? What happens when those things are uncovered? What happens when people who I don't want to find out, find out? What happens when God exposes those things? And it's also true at the same time that places of fear and guilt speak to a, uh, guilt and shame speak to a fear of judgment, there's also places where, where you've been sinned against, where you've been offended, it speaks to a need for judgment. Will there be justice? Will, will someone take up my case? If you find it difficult to think about judgment, you, you may not be looking at the world in a sober way. Because something has to reckon with conservative estimates of nearly 10,000 martyrs dying around the world every year. Something has to reckon. What about the multi-billion dollar industry of sex and human trafficking? Something has to reckon. We could keep going and listing child abuse and on and on. Something, a reckoning, a demand for a reckoning cries out. And all of us, maybe I named something that, that triggers something in you, but all of us have a thing that we care about or where, where we see offense in the world and there's something that demands, cries out for justice. And wherever that is, wherever that is for you, I would just appeal, where do you think that sense of justice came from? I would appeal that, according to Scripture, it's because you're an image bearer of the Most High God. You recognize something as for justice in the world because it's true in God, of who He is. And so this is why, when you think about the theme of judgment throughout the Old and the New Testament, it's often framed as good news and as hope for the people of God. Judgment is good news and, and, and hope for the people of God because what's being claimed in Scripture is that God will not let His world be finally given over to the forces of evil. God will not let the, his world be decreated by the forces of wickedness. And the alternative to God's judgment is actually far worse. If, if you don't like the idea of God being a judge, the alternative is actually far worse. The alternative is he doesn't exist and none of this matters and the nihilists are right. There's no consequence. Or God does exist, but he doesn't care. The alternatives to God being judge are actually are actually far worse. So the sense of the Bible's teaching on judgment for God's people is intensely hopeful because what's being said in Scripture is this, capital S, someone does see. Capital S, someone does care. Someone will stand up for me. Someone will get the final word. And so when you start to connect the themes of Advent with judgment, what's happening is 
that while the birth of Jesus may have been confusing and mysterious to lots of people in his day, I'll tell you who exactly knew what the birth of Jesus meant. And that's the demonic forces. The demonic forces knew exactly what his birth meant because when Jesus, Mark chapter one tells us, when he shows up to the synagogue for the first time, there was a demon-possessed man who cries out just upon the sight of Jesus and says, have you come to destroy us? The forces of darkness knew exactly what his birth meant. Satan still has nightmares of those infant cries coming from Bethlehem. He knew that it meant his time is short. The birth of Jesus is God's intervention on the world against darkness and evil. It's a declaration of war on Satan, sin, and death. And so it's true, God's Messiah has come. Jesus come, he came and he did do work, but the job isn't completed. And that's why you and I still cry out for his return. Jesus, come settle the score. Jesus, come, come and set all wrong back to right. And so that's the theme of our passage today. I want to give you sort of our moves and then we'll jump into them. The why of judgment, the who of judgment, and the assurance of judgment. The why, the who, and the assurance. Jump back in with me in verse 30 of our passage Acts chapter 17, it says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Just a bit of context as to where we're jumping into this verse. It's at the end of a really important and famous sermon that the Apostle Paul was given at a place called the Areopagus in Athens. It was in the middle of Greco-Roman philosophy and culture. It was the culture setting place for his day. It was a place run over with pagan religion, all kinds of pagan temples and shrines and idols and altars being set up. Some historians would say it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was a man. It was an intensely religious city, but for all the wrong reasons. And where this sermon picks up is Paul notices amidst all the shrines and temples of that place, there was an altar that was given with an inscription on it to the unknown God. So it was sort of equal opportunity worship. In case we're missing one, here's an altar given to the unknown God. And so Paul says in verse 23 at the start of the sermon, what you guys worship as unknown I'm going to make clear to you today. What you guys worship as unknown, I'm proclaiming to you. And so he starts to unpack for them the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, now made known in the man Jesus Christ. The fullest revelation of God, the clearest revelation of God, that God's not far off, he's not opposed. We don't work our way to God. He's actually worked his way to us. And so because of that, because of what God has done in Jesus, he draws the conclusion at the beginning of our passage today, the time of ignorance is over. The time of ignorance is over. It can no longer be said, I didn't know, to the unknown God. He has made himself known. The times of grasping, the times of reaching and trying to philosophize your way toward the divine, that's over. Try as you might, if you choose, to think your way to God, to reason your way to God, or to act your way into some revelation with him, but that won't stand in a hearing with the Most High. He has made himself known. The times of ignorance are over. In fact, back in Romans, in chapter one, it's gonna say that there is no person on the planet that's without excuse because of what God's revealed about himself in creation. No person's without excuse. If creation reveals something about God, how much more does his son reveal something about him? And so where the first advent and the birth of Jesus come in, he says, the times of ignorance are over. But I want you to notice this other peculiar word at the beginning of verse 30 that drives to the heart of the issue of judgment. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, overlooked. What Paul is driving at is what seems to 
have been overlooked in history. It's where moments of judgment and justice should have come. What seems to have been overlooked, he's saying God has been patient there, but it's not as though they've actually been overlooked. It's not as though they've actually been unseen. What Paul announced that day is as living and active today, life isn't without consequence. Life isn't without consequence. It may seem as though things are being overlooked. It may seem as though things are happening that should be judged, injustice and horrors of all kinds, missiles flying in to apartment buildings. But it's just not as though that's being overlooked. One way to think about this is don't mistake the patience of God for his passivity. Don't mistake where God's been patient in the world for him being indifferent or passive. I don't know all of why God allows the things that he allows to happen. I don't, I don't know. None, none of us do. But I do know that he's not indifferent. I do know that he's not indifferent. Throughout the Bible, judgment is, prim- is not primarily given as a threat. It's given as a truth, as a reality, that there is a God and he has true judgments. He understands and he's, he's the only sober one in the world. And his judgments will come to bear. But I want you to hear that the motivating factor, the thing that's motivating God towards his judgments are his love and his holiness. That's actually what motivates God. So the horrors of child abuse ought to rightly inflame any one of us, ought to cause us to want to stand up and to defend. If that's true in us, busted as we are, how much more for the Most High God for whom those children are made in his image. He's the one who gives them their dignity and their honor because that comes from him, their maker, who is himself dignified and honorable. And so it's good and right that our God holds the capacity for anger and wrath at all kinds of wickedness and evil. But it's motivated by his love. It's motivated as him as a defender and his holiness. Think of it this way. When there is the moment of holy visitation, The presence of God is not something you're thinking toward, but something that you're confronted with face to face. When his perfections, his excellencies, and his light comes to bear, everything that's an offense to his character, everything that's an offense to his holiness will be exposed and it will be drawn to account. It will be. When you turn on the lights, darkness scatters and it's put in its right place. And so his love and his perfections, they actually demand a judgment. His love demands wrong to be set to right. Here's a couple of scriptures from the New Testament. Acts, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 4. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are laid naked and exposed to the eyes of him, the all-seeing eye of God that goes to places that even we wouldn't want him to. He sees what's true are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus talked a lot about the coming day. In Luke chapter 12, notice this this chilling reality of the presence of God. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. And nothing is hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. 
there's not a single offense to the holiness of our God that will stay hidden. Notice the language of that passage. Whatever has happened in the dark, whatever has been whispered in a back room somewhere, whatever has been done that happened under the threat of silence, on the great day, God will expose that. And it will not stay hidden. And so when you think about the coming judgment of God, part of, it's part of our answer as Christians to the problem of evil in the world, the problem of evil. If God is good and all-powerful, then how does he allow such, such presence of evil in the world? And part of our answer is this, part of it. There is coming a day, a great day, when everything will be exposed and every victim will be vindicated and every injustice will be judged and made to right. Part of, that's part of the answer. And so don't mistake the patience of God for the passivity of God. The love and the holiness of our living God in the presence of evil is the why of judgment. Being who he is, if God is anything, he must also be a judge. He must also be a judge. Let's take the second here. Notice the logic of our passage, the who of judgment. Pick up again in 30. It says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And this is because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness, and that by a man whom he has appointed. And so this passage carries forward as clearly as it possibly could. Who comes into judgment? Who, who, who is going to be judged by God? It says all people everywhere. No profiling, no preference, no partiality. No one is exempt on this day. But it's also very clear to us who the judge is. It says that God has fixed a day, and we don't know that. But he's appointed a man, and we know who that is. It's the Lord Jesus. And so the reason that judgment is so often framed as good news in the New Testament is because Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the judge. This puts all notions of the Old Testament God being the mean one and the New Testament God being the nice one. It puts all notions of that away because it's one and the same. It's the God of the Bible now revealed to us in Jesus, his son. And after all, is there a better person to judge than the one who's already passed through the judgment of God? Is there a better person to judge? Is there a better person to bring judgment than the one who's already undergone judgment himself for sin? And so it's true, right? Like there is a judgment for sin, but it's also true that the judge is a savior for sinners. He, he's a savior for sinners. Is there a better person to judge than the one who came to defend the poor, heal the sick, stand up for the vulnerable and the oppressed? N.T. Rice is going to say it this way. It's such a great, helpful quote. The one through whom God's justice will finally sweep the world is not a hard-hearted, arrogant, or vengeful tyrant, but rather is the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief, the Jesus who loved sinners and he died for them, the Messiah who took on the world's judgment upon himself on the cross. Of course, this also means that he's uniquely placed to judge the systems and rulers that have carved up the world. And so you remember the call of this passage, the logic of the passages, the times of ignorance are over, so what should we do? We should repent. This is coming to all people everywhere. And so if you're here today and you're, and you're you're not a Christian. The invitation of what we're talking about today is to turn to Jesus. 
to turn to Jesus. He, he's actually not opposed to you. He's for you. The heart of the Father is not opposed to you. He's for you. That's why he sent his son. His holiness demands a judgment, but he's also taken judgment for those who would look to the cross and look to what he's done. For those who are Christians, it's not just repentance to come into faith, it's repentance all throughout the life of faith. The way you came to Jesus is the way that you stay in Jesus. Repentance doesn't stop. And so maybe to say it really clearly, there are two ways the judgment of God can be experienced. Two ways. Either standing with Jesus or standing by yourself. There are two ways on the great day the judgment of Jesus can be experienced. Standing with him or standing on your own. Standing underneath what he's already taken for you at his cross or standing on your own. Sin will be punished in one of two places. On the head of our Lord Jesus or on your head forever. And so this is why we're commanded to repent. But this is also the scandal of grace. The offer of grace is why Jesus alone can be the judge. After all, he's the most offended party. All sin that we commit affects other people, but he's the one whom we're all made in his image. It's ultimately sin against him. He's the most offended party, but he's also the one who suffered the greatest injustice. The other part of our answer to the problem of evil is not just the coming judgment, but it's that the innocent son of God had himself suffocated in the wickedness of men. So it's not that our God just stands in an ivory tower somewhere looking from a press box and on the evil of the world. He offered of himself to be smothered in it, in our place. So this is why Romans chapter three is gonna say something really beautiful about God. He perfectly, because of what happened at the cross, Jesus being smothered in the problem of evil in the world, he now on the other side of judgment is rightly and perfectly both the judge and the justifier. He's the judge who can give a final verdict on sin, but he's also the justifier who can release and deliver sinners from their sin. He's the judge and the justifier. And so as I wrap this final, to get to the final point today, as I wrap this up, it's, it's worth a quick mention, but I don't have time to take it up in full today. But the Bible is clear that on the great day, Christians will not come into judgment for sin. Your judgment, Christian, has already happened at the cross of our Lord Jesus but you will stand to give an account for your life before God, for your faith and deeds. Your life does matter. Jesus has taken, he's offered grace, but now what's your response to a life transformed by his grace? And there, there's, the Bible talks about, again, not in full view, I can't take it up today, but the Bible talks about something that I frankly don't really understand, how on the great day, the account that we give, God will offer rewards to his people for our faith and good deeds. Receiving reward from God. I'm not sure how all that works, but it comes underneath the blessings of our Lord. Here's the final today, the assurance of judgment. The, the assurance of judgment. So to this point, you've run with me. I know it's been a heavy move, intensely downloading a biblical theological framework for judgment, but I want to draw it all together and hit the so what. What, what, is, what does all this matter for you and me here and now? Maybe some of you are saying, I, I hear what you're saying, but the question about the future is, well, how, do I, how can I really know? How, how do I know is what's out there is actually out there? Look to the finish of our passage in verse 31. And he says, of this, 
of this coming judgment on where he's fixed today, of this, he has given us assurance. How? By raising that man from the dead. How do we know this coming day will actually come? Because there's an empty tomb in the Middle East that proves it. The answer and the assurance that scripture gives over and over again points back to the resurrection. The resurrection that Josh talked about last week is the hinge point of all our assurance in the faith. How do we know that we're not the most pity of all people? Because his tomb is empty. How do we know our sins are forgiven and that the cross really worked? Because he defeated the grave. How can we know that Jesus right now is ruling and reigning and will come again? Because he's not dead, that's how. How can we trust God with our own death and the death of our loved ones and the death of all those who died in faith? Because if he raised his son who was offered up for us, surely he'll raise us too and our graves will be emptied. How can we trust God not to lose control of the world and that the forces of evil would be too great? And one day set it all back to right. How can we know for sure? Because the bones aren't there anymore. We've said this before, but if the bones of Jesus are still in the Middle East somewhere, then none of this matters. If, there, if he hasn't been raised from the dead, none of this matters. God is dead and none of this matters. But if he's raised from the dead, which is true in the confession of the church since the resurrection, even the book of 1 Corinthians is going to say appeared to over 500 people. If he's raised, then nothing else matters then nothing else matters. And so when you think about the resurrection of Jesus and the day that's fixed for his return to judge the world in righteousness, that starts to put into perspective what he was saying to his disciples and to us today. Hey, disciple of Jesus, what does this matter for you today? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. The reason that Jesus could tell us to do such a crazy thing in the world as to love our enemies is because vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. You don't take up revenge in your own hands. You leave that to the just judge, and on the great day, what needs to be judged will be judged. For you now, get busy loving your enemies. He's also going to say with perspective, pray for those who persecute you. What a crazy thing. Think about the model of that in our Lord himself. When on the cross, <laughs> he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Pray for those who persecute you. Why can he say that? Because there's coming a great day when he'll set every injustice to right. This makes sense of his call to us to live a life of integrity. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Well, how can he say that? Well, because there's coming a day, Luke chapter 12, when everything whispered in the dark will be brought to light. Every careless word will be brought to light. It makes sense of him saying, hey, be a people of peace. You have every reason to be a people of peace, not of war. Why? Because your God has made peace with you and will one day take everything of wreckage in the world. And he'll get the final say. One more. There's a passage in 1 Peter that's going to say that, how do you know that what manner of holiness you would live would hasten the day of the Lord? So, the coming great day of judgment actually calls us to live holy lives, lives of obedience here and now. And he says, how do you not know that it would hasten the day? It would actually call God to the fixed, the day that's fixed. Here's the finish today. I know that there's some of you who would hear all of this. 
And you, you're one who has been sinned against intensely. And you can hear everything we're saying. And it's all right and true so far as it goes. But maybe you're here and you would say, yeah, but you don't know what that person's done to me. You don't know who offended me and how deep it went. And so for you, you might hear of all that I'm saying today, and the judgment of God could both sound simultaneously confusing and comforting. Like comforting on the one hand, because as one who's been sinned against, the judgment of God means he will take up your cause. He will stand for you. But it's confusing all at the same time because it feels as though there's certain people who are getting away with stuff they shouldn't be getting away with. And you're not sure something because of the offense done to you makes you unsure whether or not they'll actually get what is coming to them. And I've been in this hard place, maybe you're there, where you go, I'm actually a bit nervous that God would, actually, would give that person grace. I'm nervous I'm, I'm nervous that God would give that person grace. And, and it's not such an easy thing to untie as if to say, well, you didn't get the judgment you deserved. It, it's, not, it's not easily untied by that. Here's what I know. Every tear, every tear that you've ever cried is seen and is taken up by God. Every sleepless night of ache and of nightmare because of what's happened to you. God has held you, he's endured you, and he's kept you through the night. I know that. And every prayer for relief that you've ever prayed has 100% been heard by God. And on the great day when our faith becomes sight, please lean in to hear this. On that great day, there's not a single one of us who will feel uncared for. I'm not saying that as if to make the now easy. I just want to name what's true. There's not a single one of us who will feel on the great day as though we weren't defended. And there's not a single one who will feel unseen or unheard. And the reason I know this is true, the reason I can name any of those things, even to my own pains, with confidence, is because the scriptures actually give us a window into what's, gonna, what's coming for us, a window into what's actually going to be said on that great day. Revelation 19, John says, And after this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice A great multitude of the people of God in heaven. There was a loud voice and they were saying something, crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to God. Why would the great multitude of those who have been sinned against be saying something like that? Salvation and glory and power belong to God. Why? Because his judgments are true and they're just. His verdict can be trusted. There's a day that's fixed. There's a day that's fixed when these words of Revelation 19 will become our words, and we're assured of this. We know this is coming. This fixed day is coming. Why? Because the tomb is empty in the Middle East. The first advent gives way to the second. Our Lord is reigning, and he's coming.
Let's pray. Our Father, I, I don't know that I have a prayer appropriate enough for this moment. But I do ask for every person in this room, Holy Spirit, would you draw out the response from us that you intend? Thank you that your judgments are motivated by your love and your holiness. Thank you that that's true. Thank you that you are a great defender of those who are oppressed. And thank you, Jesus, that you've taken judgment on your head for everyone who would look to you. Father, I pray that for anyone here today who has not yet looked to you in that way, that you would turn their eyes. Would you show them the heart of the Father in the Son of God offered up in their place? And Father, we want to just submit to you, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us what it is to offer to you the right to judge justly. We agree with you, God. Vengeance belongs to you, and you can be trusted on the great day. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.